Got time for a quick story. Artists have expressed their views, their commentary, their perspective, their thoughts for years, decades, centuries, millennia. It's what they do. Artists are the conduit from what many people think into something concise that can relay a thought. And while that has happened, like I said, for a very, very, very long time, in pop music, it seemed as though the late 1960s was when that most crystallized, that concept of societal commentary in popular music. David Clayton Thomas, best known as the lead singer of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, wrote a song along those lines in 1966. It was called Brainwashed. It's credited to David Clayton Thomas and the Boss Men. This was not long before he joined Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So he has been looking at society, looking at what's going on, what, in his view, needs to be addressed, what, what, what should be made right for a very long time. And that's what he's doing on his new album, Say Something. Comes out March 20th, and there is a lot of societal commentary on this song. We're talking to David Clayton Thomas. And going back through this extensive career, was Brainwashed your first example of writing something about what's going on in the world around us? Well, it was definitely Brainwashed, which uh, was a number one hit in Canada uh, in 1964. Uh, and it was a really uh, a song against the Vietnam War. Unfortunately, it was about two years ahead of its time in the States, and we could never get it played. It was number one for 16 weeks here in Canada, but it never got played in the United States. About two years later, it became fashionable <laughs> to oppose the war, and you had Woodstock and everything else. But uh, that was the first time that I really got down and wrote something that was politically relevant. Over time, you've written a lot of music, and I know you've talked in interviews about how there was there was a lot of a long stretches where you weren't able to really express well whatever you wanted to express musically because you were in blood sweat and tears performing with them but they weren't hitting the studio and eventually wanted to go solo and just leave the band and do your own kind of music what what has been sort of the regardless of what has been actually released commercially what has been Maybe your bigger focuses in your own songwriting is it more? I, what? What? How would you kind of divvy up your your focus topics? Well, each album is different, of course. You know, uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and one of the reasons why I finally left that organization way back when was that they hadn't been in a recording studio in thirty years. A strange thing happens when you have the album of the year and three number one hits in a row. That's all they want to hire then. You're going to go out and you're going to play your three hits. And all the promoters care about is, are they going to play Spinning Wheel? Mm -hmm. and, and so the whole thing becomes uh, an act about those songs. And when you're in a cooperative kind of environment, like Blood, Sweat, and Tears, most of the guys make their living by being on the road. They weren't writers. 
And so they just voted for more and more and more touring. We did uh, up to 250 concerts a year all over the world for 40 years and never went back in the recording studio. Uh, that finally was enough for me. Uh, in fact, when I left Blood, Sweat and Tears in 2005 and moved back to my hometown of Toronto, I recorded three albums in the first three years. <laughs> I had so much material, so much pent-up energy and stuff that I wanted to get done. And I've recorded uh, ten, almost 10 albums in the last uh, 15 years. It's been really churning out. I, how, when you do an album, how many songs make the final cut, or do you have a lot left over? Well, in the, in the case of Say Something, uh, I had about 25 sets of lyrics written. And then I started collaborating with uh, four musicians that work with my band all the time, guys, guys that I've known for years that I have a good communication with. And we started narrowing it down. And as the songs came together, we, did, we, we started picking the songs that had a particular theme to them. One song was about gun violence. Another song was about the immigration crisis, and kids in cages at the border. And uh, uh, another song, uh, you know, just, each one had a topic that was relevant. And so we basically wintered it down to 10 songs it all had something to say, and we called the album Say Something. There, this obviously is the theme of the album, of of what many people are going through in life. I'm probably referring to even your relation back to, to Burwash, going through the society as a whole, the planet as a whole again, getting to the precipice, songs like those. But again, going back to how you've written with an eye towards society over the years, was there ever any other point when you thought, I want to do a whole album's worth of this music, or has the has the culture, the society, the environment, I don't want to, in a broad sense, did it kind of hit a saturation point where you went, I got to do a whole album of this right now? Oh, yeah, look at the material that's pouring off your television set every day. You can't make up stuff like this, as one of the songs says. It's a wealth of material. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen in my long lifetime, what's going on right now in not just politics, but just in our life in general and what we're willing to accept. <laughs> and somebody's got to say something about it. You, it's a wealth of material, and great for songwriters and comedians. That's true. And have you ever have you ever felt I we're referring to blood, sweat, and tears? Ever felt any sort of a tension between people wanting to hear audiences? Maybe at a given concert, they want to hear those hits. You refer you mentioned that. Oh, of course, everyone wants to hear a spinning wheel. Everyone wants to hear you. You made me so very happy compared to what you, as an artist, want to express in, in, in lyric, in song, and how, how do you reconcile that? No, it was, never, it was never a problem with the audience. I always managed to sneak a few new tunes into my show all the time, and I found the audience is very, very open to that. It's the industry. It's the booking industry. It's the promoters who want to book you and put it right in the contract must play spinning wheel you know? <laughs> must play you may be so very happy and and also being surrounded by guys that were, were not the original blood sweat and tears anymore 
that band was incredibly creative. We lived for writing. We lived for creating new music. After a while, it just became uh, a bunch of hired guns with no interest whatsoever except going out there, doing the gig. They played very well. That's one of the reasons I stayed in the band as long as I did. It was a great band. Mm -hmm. But they were hired guns. The creative fire was gone. How much other... Not the audiences. The audiences are really accepting. Matter of fact, I think audiences love to hear new stuff. And we're already playing concerts this month. We'll be playing, we've done it already. We played half a show of the new album, which is not even released yet. And the people are loving it. That's good to hear. Um, that's reassuring to hear. I wonder, looking at other pop music and under, understanding there's you know, there a, lot, a lot of people who are on the pop charts right now are either, either late teens and in their 20s, maybe getting in their early 30s. But that's been the case evergreen ever since pop rock music started to become a thing back in the 50s. There doesn't seem to be a lot of social commentary in current pop music. Maybe, I mean... You, you can look back on what was on the charts in maybe the mid to late 60s or so, and yes, there were some, but there was a lot that had nothing to do with current society. Do you feel as though there should be more commentary in, in amongst current musicians today, or do you find other artists that are similarly expressing commentary one way or the other on what's happening nowadays? Well... I go back to the mid-60s when I first came to New York, and the entire music industry of of the world was based in eight square blocks of downtown Manhattan called Greenwich Village. And it was a very politically active place. It uh, had great magazines. It had its own literature. It had its own little... You could walk around Greenwich Village on a Saturday night, and you'd see Carole King playing here, and James Taylor over here, and Jimi Hendrix over here in little clubs. And so it's very, very uh, socially very active. And New York, of course, is uh, a hotbed of social activism, always was, still is. In the mid to late 70s, the music business packed up and moved to L.A. Uh, and it, then the music became a, a, a background track for music videos. Hmm. And it became more about bling and dancing and, you know... Uh, nude women dancing and shaking their booties and uh, and the music took over a, a secondary place because music in L.A. does take a secondary place. In L.A. it's all about film. It's all about visual. And the music took a secondary place and I, and I think it, it has never really truly recovered from that. I'm still in my heart very much an East Coast writer. I'm still a New Yorker in my heart. And uh, and I still try to write that way, and I think about music that way. I mean, we wrote music in the 1960s that stopped a war. And I truly believe that. I saw it at Woodstock. I saw 600,000 people come together and say, we've had enough of this, and stop a war. The... in, in Among current artists, do you, can you think of any that are getting around the music industry's tendencies towards the visual and are doing a good job of expressing thought? Are there any standing out to you? Yeah, well, the music industry has changed, you know. I mean, there's some really innovative young artists out there. Uh, Billy Ellish, I, I love what they're doing in production. Uh, basically, they're making, the, making their records in the, in the brother's bedroom with a computer. 
but she's got a very soulful approach and a very individual approach. I like her singing. Uh, Bruno Mars, I love him. I'll, I'll go to see a Bruno Mars show any old day. <laughs> uh, as far as music that is making an impact on society, not really. I don't see it. That's why I wrote this album. <laughs> <laughs> I figure at my age, I got nothing to lose. I may as well say it, you know? Yeah. Well, and also, you just mentioned uh, how Billie Eilish and her brother are, are done basically bedroom work, and that that's and it obviously has made quite the impact with all the Grammys and all the success in the charts, et cetera, et cetera. I've seen your interviews and some other footage of you sitting at a computer with a with a keyboard and a microphone is that where you do a lot of your writing and creating in in a at a at a particular setup oh sure we all do you know we all have to evolve with the technology uh you know i didn't have a, my first computer until i was in my 50s <laughs> as opposed to these kids that are growing up with them today, have them have a laptop at six years old, you know? Uh, but, uh, yes, it's a wonderful tool. And, of course, digital recording now, it's, you know, we record on Pro Tools. We don't have tape machines rolling anymore, you know? Although sometimes the language hasn't changed. I still say to the engineer, okay, roll it. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops, no, there's nothing rolling. It's digital. But no, I think uh, an artist should take advantage of everything. Makes it really easy to write, uh, as opposed to sitting with a guitar and a yellow notepad and scribbling down words. You know, I'm sitting with my guitar and a keyboard and a computer and a word program, and and I can edit and put stuff together. And oh, there's a line that shouldn't be in that song. I think I'll put it in that song. You know, mm -hmm. yep. it just uh, it's like finger painting with music. And uh, so, yeah, I really appreciate the ability to do that. Is it 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 uh, is it easy? Oh, you just said it's obviously easier now. You don't have to worry about literally writing stuff down. You got it all right in front of you. Uh, how would I mean the, the the classic Blood, Sweat, and Tears album, the one that, the the self titled one that won all, all the Grammys? I've always been. Um, I've been impressed by the sonic quality on that, and I know what in the studio, I believe CBS had, CBS Records had had a what was it, like a new eight tracker. It was something. It was something where the technology was at a forefront right there. Yet you're still going in and doing tape. You're rolling it. You're rolling the machines and everything like that. Um, do you do you feel any? Is there any sense of a longing for the older way of doing it where you had the analog tape and you had the full studio? Or is it better to do it now where it's more self-contained, but you also have the technology so you can go right to inspiration when it hits you? A little of both, actually. I think that's the reason for the resurgence in vinyl. When people hear vinyl for the first time and realize how big it is and how how rich and the space between the instruments. We've almost forgotten that. We walk around with our iPhones and our little earbuds in and listen to an MP3. And, uh, you know, when we, I don't want to get technical, but when we record in the studio, we usually use 92 to 1 bit sampling rate. Mm -hmm. By the time it gets down to your MP3, it's like 36 to 1 or something. Where did all that sound go? You got the little earbuds jammed in your ears, and you don't really notice it until you take them out and you put a vinyl record on, and you hear that space. 
like you're in the room with the instruments. Mm-hmm. Uh, that cannot, that can't be digitized. Also, I record with live musicians. I don't have my bass player coming in on Thursday and the drummer on Wednesday, and you know what mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. and and put it all together. Uh, music for me has always been a conversation with my musicians, and to sit in a circle in the room and look at each other. And as a matter of fact, I insist when we set up the recording studio that we can all see each other. We can all make eye contact because something magical happens when you have four or five really great musicians bouncing off of each other like that. I think the digital recording has done away with a lot of that. And it's a shame really, because music is a conversation. And if you take that conversation out where you just have the producer and he starts with the drum track on Monday, he cuts the drums, and then uh, Tuesday he brings a bass player in, and he becomes the artist. But you never get that spark. You never get that communication that happens in music that happens spontaneously, where the bass player looks at the drummer and goes, "Pooh, I'm going here," mm-hmm. you know. And the drummer goes, "Great idea, I'm with you, man," you know. Mm-hmm. And something magic happens. That is what happens in live recording. That's what happens in jazz, and that's why I still record that way today. I will not layer my my uh, my recordings. Is that how you recorded the, the the tracks back in the? I mean, just like that in the late '60s. How much of that? And I keep going back to that classic album because it was so impeccably produced and sonically arranged. Were you singing it at the same time? It sounds that way, but it's really not. I mentioned earlier that I'm already performing songs from the new album, which won't be released for another two weeks yet. The same with that album. We were playing a little club in Greenwich Village called the Cafe Agogo. Mm-hmm. And we were playing there four or five nights a week. And we would play the songs in front of a live audience, 150, 200 people. And then the next day we would go up to 52nd Street and record the songs. So we were actually playing them in front of people, playing them as a live band before we went into the studio. (laughs) And I've kept that kind of practice going for the most part my whole career. I love to get out and play songs for people and get a reaction. And sometimes you say, whoops, that didn't work. (laughs) You know what I mean? Back to the drawing board with that one. Sometimes it just knocks the audience on its ass and you know you got a good one. <laughs> but the idea of playing live, that, that's the digital. Unfortunately, while the digital world uh, provides great tools for us, it's done away with a lot of that spontaneity. Unless you love jazz, you go and listen to jazz. Jazz cannot be overdubbed. Jazz is the conversation between virtuoso musicians. That's what it is. And it, you can't layer and overdub that stuff. And, of course, jazz has played a huge role in, in, in my music over the years. It's going through a few of the songs on this album. And last well, was sometime last year, I'm trying to remember the exact date, but was I around August or so that Never Again first came out? Uh, the lyric video for that. It was probably banned. <laughs> I was still able to watch it here in the States anyway, so that's a good sign. <laughs> it's still it's still up there. Well, when we put the track, the track was so strong. And, of course, it's, it's, it's about gun violence. You know, another bloody day in America, another mass shooting in the news. That's how the song starts out. <laughs> it, it hits you right in the guts. 
and the, the track came out so strong, the record company immediately jumped on it and said, that's your first single, we want to put it out. So they cut a little video, they put together a video on it, and put it on Facebook, and it was promptly rejected <laughs> as, as being, quote, quote Facebook, too political. <laughs> Wow. Okay, it's too political to say people shouldn't be killing each other. <laughs> but anyway, I, I never figured that one out. They, they, they would not approve it for advertising. They let us post it. Of course, they can't stop that. I posted it on my own site, but we weren't allowed to advertise it. So the record company said, we better go back to the drawing board here because uh, we're not going to get this one off the ground. You're so dependent on social media to expose a record now mm-hmm. that when a, a company like Facebook shuts it down, you're dead, you know? Right. But strangely enough, it attracted more attention because people then wanted to hear this song that Facebook had banned and started writing to the record company and sending notes to the record company of, what's the song that's been banned on Facebook? <laughs> anyway, the record company decided to go with The Circus as our first single because while the message is you know, equally as scathing. It's not specifically about gun violence. It's specifically about the the wackiness of the political scene today, just how crazy it is. That one is not considered political because it's it's uh, framed in a in a happy little tune. <laughs> it doesn't hit you in the guts. You listen to it and kind of smile and go, "Oh yeah, that's what we're that's what we're seeing every day on the news." Right? How crazy is that? It- you know. Yeah, it's it depends on how it's phrased for how I mean the subversive nature of pop music is something that's always been fascinating and how you know the classic stories of the BBC banning a song. Oh, okay, well now let's go out and buy that song and it ends up it ends up going in the opposite direction just as you said that it, it's time immemorial that this has happened. Have you by the way, have you ever had it Art a- has always been subversive. That's right. that's one of its purposes. Right. It's to speak out, you know. It's uh, it's always been somewhat subversive. You remember uh, there were uh, composers in the Middle Ages who were put to death for writing the wrong kind of music, you know. <laughs> right. It's, it's dangerous. It's supposed to be a little dangerous, isn't it? Well, right. And and maybe it, maybe we're at the point now. You you subversiveness is one thing, and the other on the other hand, knocking people over the head might be another point of view at this point. Of all of these songs, which do you think is the most urgent? The one that it, where the message today is the one people most need to hear. Well, I think there's a couple of them. Uh, the precipice, which is about climate change, is something that's really staring us in the face. The song The System is about kids who get caught up in the justice system at 15 years of age and spend the rest of their life in prison. And the absolute broken judicial system, that's got, that, that hits very home, hits home for me personally. Uh, but I think the impact song on the album is Never Again the song about gun violence. Because we sit up here in Canada. Uh, I'm in Toronto, by the way. And we see a mass shooting every three days in the States. And it's shocking to us. It doesn't happen here. Why? Well, everybody's not walking around with an AR-15 here, you know. And it hasn't cost us our freedom. We're a completely free, democratic, capitalistic country. But if you're going to have 
a weapon of war, uh, you've got to be in the military or, you know, a policeman or somebody who has a bank guard or somebody who has to use it for his job. And it takes you a long time to get one. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's the rest of the world is like that. It's America that's out of step mm-hmm. with, with, gun, with gun violence. You know, you can talk about Second Amendment all day long, but the Second Amendment is not absolute. You can't own hand grenades. You can't own a fifty caliber machine gun. You can't own a tank. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> you can't own a bazooka. Mm-hmm. It already has its limitations. And most of the mass shootings in the States, of course, are done with these these war weapons, AR-15s, AK-47s, these machine guns, basically. And... Uh, it's happened so often. There was one last week. I think five people got killed. Was it in Ohio last week? I forget oh, it was, because it got sandwiched in between two other news items and barely was noticed. I think it was actually in my state. It was down in Milwaukee. I know there were five people killed at uh, Molson Coors. Yes, it was Milwaukee. You're right. You're right. But you see, I didn't even know where it was because it happened so often that you become numb to it. You don't notice anymore. It was sandwiched in between the the impeachment hearings and the, and the coronavirus, you know. Mm-hmm. And oh yeah, and by the way, five people were killed last night. In, and every night, a, a half a dozen kids get shot down in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Don't even make the news anymore. It's not even news. Well, there's something really sick about that. I'm sorry. It's an interesting point you bring up about the about. These topics and especially. I'm probably going to get a lot of hate mail from people who say my Second Amendment and all of this <laughs> stuff. No, you know, Canada, we have more guns per capita than most countries in the world, maybe even more than the States, because this is a sporting nation up here. Most Canadians grew up with hunting. And I grew up with a shotgun and a 22 and a 30 30 over, over the fireplace. It was part of the furniture of the room. Mm-hmm. But why do you have to have an AK-47? Why do you have to have a semi-automatic machine gun that you don't use for hunting? It's meant for one purpose and one purpose only. It's to kill human beings. Mm-hmm. You the, That, I think, is unnecessary. And, and when you brought up how we move on quickly, especially here in the United States... The day that that happened, I was I was following the news here, and uh, obviously being a Wisconsinite, I'm, I'm hearing about it, keeping up with what's going on down in, I mean, Milwaukee's a ways away from where we're in in Eau Claire, but still, it's familiar enough. And so I was I was checking with my mother, who regularly watches, she watches MSNBC in particular, but, but she's watching that all, and, I, and I'm texting her back and forth and telling her about it, and she's like, they're not reporting any of this. I'm like, okay, well, when are they going to get around? They're probably talking too much about politics and da-da-da-da, it's the usual stuff. And then Are you in Eau Claire? In Eau Claire, yes. Oh, I have very fond memories. I did a concert there with Blood, Sweat, and Tears maybe 20, 25 years ago, and they, I got the keys to your city. Oh, really? In Eau Claire, the Wisconsin? Gave me the keys to Eau Claire, yes, and made it Blood, Sweat, and Tears Day in Eau Claire. Well, that's cool. Well, awesome. Hey, you, you, come back if you can. We have a, a nice, <laughs> fa- we, have a, we have a fancy new performing arts. I have fond art- memories of Eau Claire. Come, come back. We've got a fancy performing arts center that just opened a year and a half ago, and it's really beautiful. The, the downtown has been changing, and it, it's, it's a great place to come, to, to come back to here. So if you get, I'd love to. If you get the opportunity, please come back around here. But, which, I'd love to. 
I love the area very much. It's it's a gorgeous, gorgeous place to live. Absolutely. Well, she was saying they weren't talking about it on the news, and then finally, oh, yeah, they got around to it, and we're like, well, okay, part of it's probably because, well, we're in Wisconsin. We're not exactly on one of the coasts, and also there's all this political news out there. So, yeah, it, it, that's a sensation here in the United States, regardless of whatever one thinks of what do you want to do about it. It still gets desensitized to, to that point you don't hear if five people were killed in a mass shooting in Canada, it would be national news. It would be coast to coast for weeks. <laughs> it was a blip on the screen here, you know, in Eau Claire. Mm-hmm. Five yeah. people killed in Milwaukee. Okay, on to the next story. Exactly. What What did Trump say now? You know, yeah. and it just it just went by. It's just so shocking to me that that that's. You can live that way. Now, I lived in the United States. I lived in New York for 40 years, and I have a tremendous amount of affection for the States. I love it. I've crisscrossed and toured every town, village, and hamlet in the U.S. I know it very, very well, and I know it are good, good people. Mm-hmm. And they're going to eventually do the right thing. Before I, le- before I let you go, I have one more question about the music in particular that you do. I mentioned my mom sure. a, a bit ago, and she was in college when that when the, the self-titled album came out late in early, early 69. And she was remarking, I was mentioning that I was going to be doing this interview, and, and she said, oh gosh, back when we were in college, she was a music major in college, music education mm-hmm. major, and they were studying the variations on Gymnopédie number one by Eric Satie at, from the Blood, Sweat, and Tears album and connecting that to, as an example of, okay, here's this in popular music, as it probably would have been called in, in a setting back then, but connecting that to the music of you know, romanticism and the variations on that. Um, that was That is but one example of the variety of sound of blood, sweat, and tears that it can go from, as you've referred, jazz to blues to, well, their romantic music. There was all on one album, and then, of course, all the other albums. You've had a variety of music in your solo career over the past few years. There's there's Cuban sounds. There's the, I mean, there's the oompa of the circus. There's, I'm just using a couple surface examples. What kind of music do you want? Is there another type of music that you have not yet tapped into that much that you want to do on a future project? No, that was a gift from New York. Living in New York, New York is such an eclectic town. The guys who played in Blood, Sweat, and Tears would play a Broadway show in the afternoon. They'd go up and play jazz in Harlem at night. They'd come down to the village and play uh, and play Latin music, Spanish Harlem, you know. They played, and not only that, they were very well-educated musicians. Most of the guys had master's degrees from Juilliard and Eastman and Manhattan and very highly skilled musicians. But it was that sound of New York, that eclectic sound, you know, where you have all of those races and cultures all compressed together on that island of Manhattan. Uh, that's the sound of blood, sweat, and tears. It was the sound of New York. Mm. It's it's a sound that has continued through your voice over time, and it's really reassuring getting to when I did the click on the circus the other day when I heard about that and going, good, I'm hearing David Clayton Thomas after all these years, and this is a good thing for people to hear. Say Something comes out March 20th, one of, the, quite honestly, what I think one of the better voices of pop rock music, still going strong, David Clayton Thomas. Thank you for writing and recording and still putting out new music, and we're looking forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you, Luke. Good talking with you.
David Clayton Thomas there. Good chat with him. And it's good to hear people have something to say. Not as a pun on the on the album title, say something. It, it it's true. Having I mean, that's the that's the point of artistry is to express your thoughts, whatever they are. They are they musical thoughts, are they lyrical thoughts? And he's still doing it. You can learn more about David Clayton Thomas by going to his website. There's plenty of information right there at davidclaytonthomas.com. davidclaytonthomas.com. He's on a lot of the social media sites as well. You can find him on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Go to YouTube as well. You can watch a lot of videos. There's a lot of content that he's been putting out over time, and you can learn a whole lot about David Clayton Thomas. He had an autobiography that came out a little ways back, David Clayton Thomas, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. You can buy that book and find a link at David Clayton Thomas. This has been the latest edition of Got Time for a Quick Story. Thanks, as always, to my employer, Greatest Hits 98.1 Radio in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, for providing facilities to do these interviews. And you can listen to a lot of these interviews at their website, GreatestHits981.com. That's GreatestHits981.com. Also, you can subscribe to Got Time for a Quick Story at Apple, Android, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, however you listen to podcasts. Well, hopefully you listen through one of those methods because that is how you can listen to Got Time for a Quick Story and rate it, hopefully, highly because that's how the word spreads about this podcast. Got Time for a Quick Story? I'm Luke Anthony.